Welcome to the Phase World Podcast. Engaging conversations that cross the boundaries between business, art, and the digital world. Thank you for listening to the Phase World Podcast. I'm your host, Fei Wu. What do I do on my podcast? I tell stories and celebrate lives. It is with great pleasure for me to welcome Dr. Lee Schramm, Professor of Neurology from Harvard Medical School, also Vice Chair of Neurology from Mass General Hospital, also known as MGH, in Boston, Massachusetts, to the Face World Podcast. So let me tell you a story. Growing up in China, many kids, such as myself, had an obsession towards the medical field. Only for me later to learn that I didn't really have what it took to become a doctor. Nearly 10 years into my own career now, I still find myself desperately wanting to know more and to understand what it is that make doctors into who they are and how they can do what they do. You know, for most of us, organic chemistry alone is making us all very anxious. In this one hour interview, Lee talks with me about a day in the life of a neurologist at MGH, followed by a 20-minute deep dive into the study and evolution of patient care and patient satisfaction. What are some of the more straightforward measurements versus the ambiguous measurements in patient care? Consider these domains. Measurements of doctor's intention, whether or not their intentions match the patient's wishes, or by the outcomes themselves, or by the procedures doctors recommend. As you can imagine, it gets complex pretty quickly. Some of you may already be thinking about crowdsourcing, but in this case, does the crowd know best? What exactly are the values people look for in a doctor or in a hospital? In the second half of the interview, I time traveled with Lee back to where he was still in college. What was Lee's secret origin story that shaped him into who he is today? Get ready for Lee's POV on robotic surgery, social network analysis, and also brain technology into healthcare. If you enjoyed listening to this episode, check out other ones on phaseworld.com, F-E-I-S-W-O-R-L-D, with additional tools and resources. So good news is there's no need to take notes. I interview people from all walks of life, doctors, artists, actors, speakers, Dancers, yogis, never a dull moment. Without further ado, please welcome Lee Schramm. So, uh, I'm so happy that your title is so much easier for a foreign person to say. I practiced the anesthesia. anesthesia anesthesia for like 20 times and because I'd never say it but thank you Lee for coming for joining me for my wonderful podcast this is my life calling according to so my previous uh, guests on the show so you are the vice chairman of uh, the Department of Neurology at MGH Massachusetts General Hospital for those mm-hmm. of um, uh, my audience who don't live in Boston, it's, in my opinion, it's like this is one of the most prestigious hospitals in the in, in United States. 
recently I read this article that MGH is opening up uh, hospitals in China. I was so excited. <laughs> I was so excited. It was like, people are going to be saved. And they're, <laughs> they're counting by the size of the hospital by uh, how many beds or uh, I don't know how there's a technical mm -hmm. term for that, mm -hmm. like 500. And it's incredible. So welcome to the show. My first question is, could you help us paint a picture of a day in the life of Li Shrong? Well, thank you, Faye, for having me on. It's a pleasure to chat with you. So it's a little hard to, to paint a typical day because what my day consists of shifts depending on, on what phase of my work I'm in. So unlike some doctors who have a practice where they see patients every day, mm -hmm. I see patients in bursts. So when I'm the attending who's in charge of the patients admitted to the hospital in neurology, then I come in at 7.30 or 8 in the morning. I'm with the patients and the trainees all day. Might have a meeting or two in the afternoon, but pretty much I'm on the uh, inpatient wards where the patients are mm -hmm. for the whole day for two weeks in a row. Mm -hmm. Weekends, weekdays, not much difference. That's very different than how I am when I'm not on one of those bursts. And I do those bursts about 10 weeks a year. Mm. So about... 20-25% of my time I spend in direct patient care teaching younger doctors how to take a good history, understand what the test results mean, talk to patients and their families about diagnosis, about what it means to be ill, what we might expect is the recovery, or explain to them that their loved one has had a devastating neurological injury and is not likely to recover. So it really spans the, the gamut of uh, what people experience because the brain is such an important organ you can have a very minor reversible injury and get admitted to the hospital or you can have a devastating injury which you'll never recover from mm -hmm. when i'm not doing that i would say i spend about 20 percent or 30 percent of my time doing research and other kinds of teaching mm -hmm. and i spend uh, the rest of it doing administrative tasks related to running the department mm -hmm. which are very um interesting and variable, but at the role that I am now, largely involves working with other people who are leaders in the department, helping them be successful in executing on a task that we together have worked on mm -hmm. to, to try to realize the vision that we have for the department. Mm -hmm. Fascinating. And when I proposed this interview on you, I remember mm -hmm. we quickly kind of dove into this area and I don't recall the title of it, but I mm -hmm. think it was related to sort of uh, customer or customer in this case, patient mm -hmm. satisfaction mm -hmm. and how to measure a success of a treatment mm -hmm. or a, a sequence of treatments. It, does that sound any accurate at all? Mm -hmm. So it's, that's an area that is increasingly coming into focus in the field of medicine. Mm -hmm. As medicine is looked at more and more as the delivery of a product or service, and not just as a professional art, mm -hmm. where each individual would practice that art in the way that they were most comfortable. So in, in previous decades or generations, the doctor was in some ways like a master painter or sculptor. Mm -hmm. There might be some general directions mm -hmm. or ideas of what the customer wanted, but largely they went to the artist hoping to, to purchase their services. And there was very little guidance or constraints around how they might perform their craft. Mm -hmm. So there were conventions, but no 
real regulations. And there were some barriers to prevent harm, but people didn't generally compare what you did versus what I did. The way you got more patients, more customers was by word of mouth and if people respected you and if you were recognized and promoted by academic societies. So the higher your rank mm -hmm. in the society, the more desirable you were. Mm -hmm. So that was really the old way of looking at things. And while hospitals tracked important things like the percentage of people who were dying in the hospital or how many serious infections were occurring, mm -hmm. there really were not methods to compare one hospital to another or rank hospitals. And that process probably began about maybe 30 to 40 years ago mm -hmm. with the idea that the, the procedures that had been developed to improve the quality and safety of products in factories like the auto industry and the airplane industry could be applied to medicine mm -hmm. and that you could start to measure the quality of care as the first step toward trying to improve it. And that rather than accept the idea that defects were expected, mm -hmm. that you could actually decide that defects were unacceptable and then figure out how to prevent them. Mm -hmm. And so the auto industry in the United States in the, up until the say 1950s, 1960s, American cars frequently would break. They would frequently be defective when they were purchased, first purchased. Things wouldn't work. Things would fall off. You'd be expecting to bring it back and have it repaired frequently. And then the uh, Asian cars entered the market, particularly the Japanese cars, which had really adopted this philosophy of defect-free production. And the world you know, became enchanted with the reliability of these vehicles. Mm -hmm. And they completely transformed the auto industry. And everybody had to follow suit and figure out how to do what they had figured out how to do. Okay. And that wave has now swept into medicine. And some would argue that it's swept in to such an extent that it's actually undermining some of the other beneficial aspects of medicine. But I, my personal feeling is that it's vital to figure out what is important and try to measure it. Mm -hmm. Because it's only when you measure it that you can really know what you're doing and, and where you're failing. Mm. Because as human beings who are invested in providing care and being successful, our natural tendency is to recognize and celebrate the successes mm. and try not to look too hard at the failures. Yeah. And not, whenever possible, to ascribe them to something we did wrong. That's just our nature. Mm -hmm. So if we don't build processes that are specifically counter to that nature, mm -hmm. we will inevitably fail to learn from our mistakes. Mm -hmm. So that's really the kind of rise of quality and safety as a major pillar mm -hmm. uh, in medical, the medical, I don't want to call it bureaucracy, but organizational structure. And you will see now that at all the major hospitals in the United States, quality and safety is a, a, an important and recognized pillar mm -hmm. that is part of the mission of every hospital. Mm -hmm. And it's not an easy thing to figure out what's, what to measure and how to measure it. Yeah. And it's expensive to measure things well because the effort you're applying to the measurement is effort you're not spending on treating one more patient mm -hmm. or doing one more experiment or you know whatever it is that supports the mission of the hospital and the profit margin of the hospital so they can reinvest in the future of the care delivery. Mm -hmm. So simple things have been measured for a long time like mortality, death. But here's a problem when it, let's compare two different diseases. If you're young and healthy and you come in the hospital with pneumonia, 
and you die, that's a terrible outcome. And that would be something we would always want to avoid. So ranking hospitals on the rates of mortality after pneumonia makes a lot of sense. What if you come into the hospital with a terrible stroke so that you're paralyzed, unable to speak, and you had said before this in your 80s, I would never want to live like that. If I'm dependent, I have to live in a nursing home, I can't feed myself, I can't talk, I don't want anything done to help me survive. And then you die mm -hmm. in the hospital. That's probably better. That's probably in your mind a better outcome mm -hmm. than if you had survived with, with profound disability. Right. How do you measure that? How do you measure that? Or how do you adjust mm -hmm. for that so that that actually counts in the favorable column? Mm -hmm. So one way to rank outcomes would be to say, who meets this objective measure? That's sort of a facility level outcome. Mm -hmm. Another approach would be to say, no, the goal of medical care is not to prolong survival. The goal of medical care is to meet the patient's, the customer's needs. Mm -hmm. What does the customer want? Not what do I think the customer should want. Mm -hmm. What do they actually want? Mm -hmm. So there you might say that we had achieved a good outcome. Mm -hmm. The customer, the patient's needs were very clearly expressed. If I have this terrible event, I don't want to live. We didn't do anything to make them die. In this country, we don't allow that as mm -hmm. physician-assisted suicide or, mm -hmm. or give you know, lethal doses of medications. Right. But there's something in this country called the principle of double effect, mm -hmm. which means that if you're providing care and comfort mm -hmm. and the patient dies sooner as a, as a consequence of that, mm -hmm. that's not in any way considered inappropriate and is exempt from any prosecution. So you're not mm -hmm. at risk of being uh, criminally prosecuted or sued mm -hmm. because of that. We also are not under the obligation to provide medical care simply because it exists. Mm -hmm. So if a family member or a patient says, I don't want any food anymore, I don't want any medications, I don't want any fluids, mm -hmm. we are under no obligation to force them to take those. Mm -hmm. And if you can't eat and you can't drink by yourself mm -hmm. and you therefore you know, uh, slowly become dehydrated and, and have your blood pressure drop and eventually die from that, mm -hmm. that's also considered completely appropriate within the standard of medical ethics in this country. So what's the right outcome measure there? Did we, did we score a win because that patient needs were met in the way that they had specified? Or did we fail because we didn't rescue them? Well, we might have failed in that we didn't reverse their deficit and help them recover, right? That would have been the best outcome if we could have given them a drug or a procedure and the stroke that was evolving reversed itself mm -hmm. and now they woke up and they could move their arm and they could talk again and they could eat again. That's, that would be the ultimate win. So, so just think about that one case, how complicated it is. So how, how should you rate me on how I did? Mm -hmm. Patient came in, they had a chance to improve, but I failed at that. Mm -hmm. But once they didn't get better, and maybe I didn't even fail, maybe I gave the right treatment, but mm -hmm. they just didn't respond. Now they're in a place where they don't want anything more done, having just wanted something very aggressive done, mm -hmm. and now they die. Is that a good outcome? Is that a bad outcome? So mm -hmm. you can see how it's incredibly complicated mm -hmm. to measure it from any kind of pre-specified set of criteria. And then the, the last thing you could do is you could ask the family, or the survivors, or the patient. How was your experience of the care, mm -hmm. right? Did you have a good experience in the hospital? And that's likely to be influenced 
tremendously by the kinds of interactions they had with the healthcare team and the broad healthcare team, the dietitians, the people who bring in the food trays, the people who clean the floors, the nurses. If they had a really good experience because they felt people were kind to them, they might rate the experience incredibly highly, even if you could deliver to terrible care. As long as you were kind and thoughtful and explained things well, but totally failed to recognize the pneumonia, didn't treat mm -hmm. it in time, and then it became overwhelming. Mm -hmm. And they would say, they were so kind to us, they treated us so well, you know, we would always come back here. By the same token, you could imagine the opposite scenario, mm -hmm. where a family came in, you did everything you could, but things just didn't come out for the best, and now the patient is angry, mm -hmm. or the family is angry, and, and they feel that dissatisfied, and they feel cheated that their loved one didn't survive or didn't do well. Mm -hmm. and that you must have not done the right thing because the outcome wasn't good. Mm -hmm. So do you, how do you measure people? By their intentions? Mm -hmm. By whether or not their intentions were well matched with the patient's wishes? Or by the outcomes themselves? Yeah. Or by the procedures that we recommend be done in those circumstances? Mm -hmm. Because we know from big studies that when you do those things, patients have a better outcome. Mm -hmm. So I think the short answer is, and I see you writing down lots of questions, so I'll, I'll, I'll pause in a moment. So I think the answer is you have to measure all these domains. And each one is measuring something different. And whether we combine those all into a single number, which this country loves, getting a final grade, you know, yeah. that's the summary of everything, yeah. or whether we just present it as a more complex picture of five or six domains where you can do better or worse in different domains. Mm -hmm. I don't see how we can get away without measuring all of those because they're they're not overlapping. Mm -hmm. They're all measuring something different. Mm -hmm. And the best of all possible care would occur when all of those domains are well met. Mm -hmm. When they're not all well met, some of them reflect compromises that occur as we try to care for patients and their families within the constraints of the system that we live in. Mm -hmm. I think it's important, even if there's a final score, but to also reveal the relative scores for each of the categories mm -hmm. instead of hiding them because for anybody in or outside of the medical fields, I cannot look at a score of 98 and try to make sense out of that and even use a complete dumbed down version of eBay selling. Mm -hmm. right? eBay even integrated the scoring system mm -hmm. of what is your communication to the customer? Mm -hmm. What is your shipping speed? Was yeah. your shipping cost reasonable? Yeah. Um, so I think it, it, it's really interesting that it's quite uh, when you have other people rate you and over time and it, you know you have a starring system and all that There are a lot of people in medicine who think it's a terrible idea to, <laughs> to measure and rate mm -hmm. because they don't think that the crowd actually Captures what's important and then in fact it's distorting so mm -hmm. for example there are a lot of hospitals that will say if I'm a big um, Academic teaching hospital like a Mass General or a mm -hmm. Johns Hopkins mm -hmm. I attract all of the most difficult cases mm -hmm. from the community around me. Mm -hmm. Those patients get admitted to smaller hospitals yeah. who keep the simple, easy, quick patients and send the complicated ones to me. To MGH and to you. So yeah. I become a concentrator for mortality mm -hmm. and poor outcomes. Yeah. And the smaller hospitals look like the best hospitals in town because mm -hmm. they get the five-star ratings on everything yeah. because the complexity is low. The time spent in the hospital is short. Mm -hmm. The focus is more on um, the quality of the interactions and not as much on the complexity of the medical care. Mm -hmm. And so they 
um, they get to maximize and master a, a simple and repetitive series of interactions. It's almost like focusing on the efficiency rather than the effectiveness. Um, well, they're very effective. Actually, I don't. I wouldn't say that. They're very effective and lower cost at what they do. Mm. But if you don't fit into one of the product lines perfectly, yeah. you're in trouble. So if they're a Toyota and Mazda mechanics yeah. uh, shop, mm. and you have a Toyota or a Mazda with a simple problem, you'll get in and out of there quickly yeah. and, and be very satisfied. Yeah. But if you have a Volkswagen, or you have an older model, BMW. or you have something that doesn't quite... Uh -huh. um, where it's not obvious what the problem is, mm -hmm. you're going to have a very different experience and you're going to end up mm -hmm. at a specialty shop, a right? And, and that's what the general hospital is. Right. A and general I'm hospital is, a, is, a, is an auto body rep, um, and mechanic shop that has to fix any car, mm -hmm. no matter what it is, and has to stock all the parts, mm -hmm. no matter what they are or know how to get them. And you don't even tell them what kind of car you have when you arrive. Uh, yeah, what, just, what was already wrong with it? You just bring a car in <laughs> under a drape and you say, you know, when I put the key in, it doesn't work. Can you fix Not can you fix it? Mm -hmm. And please fix it and you can't say no. Mm -hmm. And m my friend over there will decide what you should be paid for this. Mm -hmm. You don't yeah. get to charge me what you want. He'll tell you what you get paid. Yeah. So it's a very, um, the system that we're in is not one that is designed for efficiency. Mm -hmm. It's designed to support um, a, a, an overcapacity within the large general hospitals. They're deliberately designed for inefficiency because they have to be ready mm -hmm. to deal with anything. Everything, yeah, yeah. And on top of all that, as we all know, I mean, consumer goods, right? People mm -hmm. don't write a review until they, they feel completely dissatisfied and they have something to complain. That's when people are like, where's the form now? Mm -hmm. I mean, I felt the same way with a AAA showing up uh, at my house and, um, you know, not, I requested specifically for a battery for a BMW, this mm -hmm. model. The, the guy showed up, said, you don't need one. Uh, and, you know, he's like, you should just run your car in your garage for an hour, right? With the garage door closed, you should be all set. I was like, that's, that's, not, that's not right. And then that, so I think to your point, I feel like it could be very biased uh, in terms of the feedback. Right, so that's another thing we didn't mm -hmm. touch on, which is how do you trust the information that you're getting? And so you've mentioned a couple of different sources of bias. One of them is people at the extremes tend to be more vocal than people in the middle. Mm -hmm. So the people who had a great experience, life-saving, or who had a terrible experience right. are more likely to comment. And it's really the ones with the terrible experience mm -hmm. are even more likely to comment. Mm -hmm. So you have to figure out ways to benchmark one comment against others. Mm -hmm. The other thing is that I think more and more people buy certain consumer goods based on reviews. They, they really look at TripAdvisor to decide what hotel to stay at. Mm -hmm. In medical care, it's much more about brand and reputation. People don't necessarily trust online reviews as a broad reflection of the care. They too are suspicious mm -hmm. of one angry rant about Mass General doesn't stop them from going to Mass General. Now, an angry rant about Dr. Jones mm -hmm. might make them think twice. Right. And maybe they seek out a different doctor at a place like Mass General. So the, the people don't seem to select based on that. They will select to some extent based on convenience mm -hmm. and their perceptions of quality, mm -hmm. and they will select based on cost. Mm -hmm. So as we move away from 
the current insurance model where patients are very insensitive to the differences in prices. Mm -hmm. So if you have an insurance that will pay anywhere, you don't have any sense of that you ought to go to the smaller community hospital for something simple as opposed to the Mass General mm -hmm. because you don't experience a difference or maybe you experience a $10 difference in cost. That's more than made up for your faith in the quality of care. <laughs> but if you expose patients to the full differences in costs, then what you really do is you're creating a two-tiered system where poor people don't have access to the best care because they can't afford it. Right. And so how you figure out how to distribute that risk, that financial risk across the population so broadly that people have some sensitivity mm -hmm. to risk, but it's not so coercively large that it prevents people from accessing care, is that's also a very difficult challenge. Mm -hmm. but, but there's a tremendous amount of bias in measurement and if you're not careful, you can be easily misled. Mm -hmm. We love polls, we love surveys, we love ratings because mm -hmm. it appears to take a lot of the difficult aspects of decision-making away mm -hmm. and gives us a simple ruler mm -hmm. or measuring stick to say, oh, okay, well, I'm gonna buy the Samsung phone because it got a higher rating on this website I trust mm -hmm. on these five areas that matter to me. Right. It's much more empowered than it used to be, right? It used to be there were very few sources mm -hmm. of expertise and most of those sources were filtered and collected only by experts mm -hmm. who many of the times were being paid by the companies whose products they were evaluating, right? So mm -hmm. we were much more vulnerable to bias uh, in those days with fewer people making observations. Mm -hmm. The real question is, does the crowd know best? I cannot recall a single engine or a service that actually helped someone like me, as comfortable as I am with computers, yeah. to find what I need when it comes to medical care. So I think part of what you're reflecting and part of the, the challenge here is that what makes a good doctor is very complex. Mm -hmm. There are several elements to that. One of them is, and the one that is maybe most easily um, commented on on the surface, is just their personality, right? Mm -hmm. Even that's tricky because what you find appealing in the physician's personality, someone else might find a real turnoff. So yeah. the idea that you would rate people in terms of desirability to me makes no sense. Yeah. The idea that you might classify people, you know, this doctor is incredibly warm and personal and he takes a lot of time. This doctor is more conservative and stiff, but seems older and more mature. I mean, I can understand it's a little bit like a dating service, right? You mm -hmm. want to, you want to have a, a feeling of closeness and confidence in your doctor and if you're very self-aware maybe you know what those traits are I think most people don't even know what traits they're looking for mm -hmm. they're just waiting for that feeling inside of ah to trigger to I can trigger. relax yeah. like, I feel safe here mm. but so much of what a doctor brings to a relationship depends number one on why you're seeing them mm -hmm. are you trying to find a primary care doctor who's going to be with you for years and is going to sort of stay with you through sickness and health are you trying to find a specialist for a very specific problem? Mm -hmm. Part of the value of the right, in quotes, doctor is who they're connected to. Mm -hmm. Are they in an environment that has a lot of high reliability systems, right? When they're making measurements, are they measuring just with one device or do they have a backup device, right? Mm -hmm. If something's really important piece of information, is it being written on a piece of paper mm -hmm. and stuck <laughs> in a chart that may or may not make it back to the file room? Mm -hmm. Or is it in a digital archive of some kind? Is it 
is the their ability to prescribe you a medication is it linked to a pharmacy mm -hmm. so that they can send the, the medication request to the pharmacy while you're in the office mm -hmm. to make sure there's no errors I love and that, that the, yeah. and that the you know the prescription is waiting for you when you get there the can they use a, a system electronically to check and make sure that they're not prescribing a drug you're allergic to mm -hmm. or that has an interaction with drugs you're already on right so part of what makes a doctor good is the system they practice in Part of what makes a doctor good is the other doctors they know. Mm -hmm. if, if your doctor doesn't know any specialists and doesn't have access to any good specialists, mm -hmm. they might be a wonderful person, mm -hmm. but in your hour of need, you might feel very disappointed. Mm -hmm. On the other hand, they might be in a great system, like MGH or partners, they might have access to all these great specialists, and they might not feel like a very nice person, mm -hmm. or they might seem totally burned out and overworked, mm -hmm. or they might not be patient or give you the feeling that when you're with them, they're really solely focused on you and not the 10 patients after you that they are gonna have to see before they can go home for dinner. Mm -hmm. So I, I don't know how to find a good doctor, mm -hmm. honestly, because I'm not in that position. Mm -hmm. I'm in a very, because I live inside the culture, yeah. it's, it's a different experience for me than it would be for a regular citizen who just wants to you know, come to town and find a good doctor. Mm -hmm. And so I think part of what people do is they talk to other people they trust, mm -hmm. who they think have <clears throat> similar needs to them, mm -hmm. and they try to find out what they do. Mm. And then either copy that or carry that forward, you know, into another, you know, seeking, you know, to replicate that in another relationship. That's a great advice because I found my favorite dentist of a lifetime, mm -hmm. you know, because I took your advice, <laughs> copied your dentist, Polensky, yeah. which is it's incredible. Mm -hmm. I mean... Uh, I grew up, I don't think I have great dental gene to mm -hmm. begin with, and I had a lot of, ate a lot of candies as a kid, <laughs> <laughs> and I've always been scared. It's mm -hmm. like the kid once almost drowned, I always, I carried that fear with me my whole life mm -hmm. until yeah. I met him. Yeah. And every treatment I've received so far, I felt at ease. I completely trust him. Yeah. He's funny, and it's just really interesting how... Well, I, you know, I think there are very few things we value more than our health. And so trusting a person that we're entrusting that to mm -hmm. is, is incredibly important. That's, that's really interesting. And I want to spend some time there because I'm sure you know it's a question that uh, medical professionals as well as patients, yeah. customers, are really interesting finding out. Um, but you've done so much. I mean, I was looking at your bio and... Um, you're a professor at Harvard Medical School, and that's also where you graduated from. Mm -hmm. um, and, um, <laughs> you know, I was asking Lisa a little earlier about a, a category of question, it's called secret origin, mm -hmm. and of really learning something about someone that's not easily uncovered through a bio. Mm -hmm. And one of the most interesting piece uh, about yourself can ask for your permission to talk about it or mm -hmm. not is when you're in college mm -hmm. that you were a uh, was it a biker boy or you you had a motorcycle <laughs> you um, you know we I only heard these stories from um, your sons and and then you became a, a doctor and at a time you were at Princeton I was at Princeton for a, a year and a half and then I took a year off and came back and to finish my sophomore year at Princeton and I was really not fitting in there very well. There were mm -hmm. parts about it that I liked, but there were a lot of parts that I didn't like. And so while I was away, I applied to transfer to Harvard where I felt like 
things might be a better fit for me. Mm. And I was very fortunate to get in as a transfer student. There was not a lot of transferring back in, when I was in college. Mm -hmm. This was in 1982. Mm. Um, it was a pretty unusual thing to do. Mm. Uh, at the time, I thought I wanted to go to graduate school in philosophy and be a philosophy professor and teacher and, and be an academic. And so I had some strong academic reasons why that was a better fit for me. But more than anything, I just felt like it was the right community for me and that mm -hmm. Princeton didn't feel like the right community for me. Um, so I was trying out a lot of different things. I sounded like you were a slacker that you took some time off and got into Harvard. So, <laughs> I mean, in, in 2014, uh, I was going to ask you, how did that transition work? Were you writing the Bible while listening to your iPod <laughs> so you can learn about these exam materials? <laughs> No, <laughs> no, and actually, to transfer, there was no, there was no exams or anything like that. It was just you wrote an essay, basically, as so you wrote a letter, basically, saying you know why I want to transfer, mm -hmm. um, and then you had to submit the same kind of stuff that you would have submitted a year before to actually get into college in the first place. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, I, I don't. Uh, none of it was very thought out or particularly calculated. Mm -hmm. um, I had applied to Harvard originally. Um, but had withdrawn my applications once I got in early to, I, I applied to Princeton and to Yale. Mm -hmm. Back in those days you could apply what was called early action, which sometimes mm -hmm. still exists at some schools where it was not binding for the school, but for you, but it was binding for the school. And you could only apply to two places at once that, that offered that. And I got in early to Princeton where my father and sister had gone. Mm -hmm. um, and in those days, I think being a, a legacy you know, of a family meant a lot more than it does now. Mm -hmm. I mean, I went to a very competitive private New York high school where everybody applied to college and a quarter of my class went to Ivy League schools, so it was not mm -hmm. unusual. It was a very, um, that was the expectation. What high, was the high power. It was called Fieldston. Okay. Um, and it was in a, just north of New York City in the Bronx, in a, in a small um, part of the Bronx called Riverdale, where there's a couple of schools like that. Mm -hmm. So that was not out of the ordinary at all, and everyone in my family had applied to um, and gone to an Ivy League school. My sister went to Princeton uh, four years ahead of me, so we were never there together. Mm -hmm. And my brother went to University of Pennsylvania, and my father had gone to Princeton mm -hmm. and Harvard Business School. So it was just kind of expected mm -hmm. that you would mm -hmm. apply to the school that was the most prestigious. Mm -hmm. I'm was... so glad that wasn't the case for me, because <laughs> 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 none of my parents had gotten into uh, uh, such extraordinary school center. <laughs> well, but it was just, um, there was not this idea that there is now. I mean, our boys are, one is in school and one is applying to school right now as we mm -hmm. speak. There was none of this emphasis on finding a, a school that was the right fit for you. Mm. you. You applied to the school, largely the ones that were physically, geographically near to you, yeah. within reason, that was the most academically prestigious, that would give you the best advantage later in life when you wanted to get your next school mm -hmm. or, or job. Mm -hmm. So uh, this idea of individualization, of teacher-student ratios, of this culture of developing yourself as a person and actualizing yourself as a person, that really was not part of the formula. Mm. It was work hard in high school. Mm -hmm. If you were a serious student, work as hard as you can, get the best grades you can, apply to the best school you can get into, mm -hmm. and then do as well as you can when you get there. Right? Mm -hmm. And that was just the, at least that was the New York Jewish upper middle class ethic mm -hmm. when I was growing up. So I did that, and then I just was really unhappy at Princeton. Mm -hmm. uh, my parents had gotten divorced a year before, so my personal life was a bit tumultuous. Um, and 
I just didn't want to go through four years of college not really enjoying it. Mm -hmm. I had always enjoyed school and I really loved learning and I wasn't loving being there and I mm -hmm. thought, this is crazy. I mean, never mind that it's expensive. Mm -hmm. I was fortunate enough that my family had enough money to pay for my college so I didn't have to go into debt mm -hmm. to be at college. I think if I was paying for it, I would have left sooner, mm. quite frankly, because wow. it would have been un unacceptable mm. to spend that kind of money and not feel like you were getting mm. the right things out of it. Not that I thought it was a bad place. It just wasn't a good fit for me. Mm -hmm. What did you end up studying at Harvard for the remaining? Uh, so until, I, until my senior year, so I graduated as a philosophy major. Oh, so I, Harvard. Yeah, nice. so I continued in that, in that direction when I got there. It was the reason that I picked Harvard over other places because of the particular, um, uh, not school of philosophy, but the, the, this particular area within philosophy that I was interested in, which was existentialism and a, an area called recent continental philosophy, recent starting in the 1700s, mm -hmm. <laughs> as opposed okay. to, you know, Aristotle and Plato. Um, but it was a lot about um, questions about meaning, about existence, about the mind, and whether or not the mind was a property that could be emulated, say, in a computer, or whether there was some other element like consciousness that was distinct from the mind. So it was very much about metaphysics. That was very interesting to me, and that was what I wanted to study. And you can imagine how that leads to becoming a neurologist. Yeah, I mean, there's, I a, there's a pretty obvious connection there, although it was not apparent to me at the time. But I would say for two big reasons, I moved in my senior year away from that and decided that I wanted to go to medical school. The first was that I have, uh, was raised with and have a very strong sense of a, a kind of a civic responsibility and I, I really wanted to make a difference and have an impact. And I, I discovered that if I was the best philosopher of the entire 21st century, I would impact a relatively small number of people, right? I mean, I would have, what were there, like six or eight people in my senior seminars in, you know, within my degree and I wouldn't have the... Um, I wouldn't have the kind of opportunity to make a real difference in people's lives. Mm -hmm. There were some political philosophers who had been influential at the, you know, when I was in school, who were um, important figures in advising governments and things like that about you know, democracy. You could potentially go to law school and and become a lawyer or a judge, or you know, there were there were some avenues there that you could use a philosophy degree to get to. But to be a philosopher directly, mm -hmm. it just didn't seem very relevant. Fascinating, mm -hmm. but very narcissistic at some level. Just mm -hmm. all about you, reading things you like, not making a difference in the world. Mm -hmm. The second was that I had my own experiences of illness, which opened up my mind mm -hmm. to a, a completely other world. There were no doctors in my family. No one had ever talked about being a doctor. I didn't really think, I didn't really know what being a doctor, I know it went to go to the doctor, but I didn't really have a sense of what it would be to be a doctor. And that experience made it possible for me to actually place myself in the hands of several physicians, mm -hmm. really know what it was like to have to trust a doctor, right. and have the incredible experience of having somebody who I had to trust in that way without really having a choice about it, mm -hmm. living up to and exceeding any expectations I had about, you know, why is this person who has no relationship to me, who's never met me before, why do they care? Why are they putting themselves out and investing that kind of attention and energy and thought in making me better? I take it as you had very good doctors. I had amazing doctors. I had some not so amazing doctors too, but, mm -hmm. but that I kind of expected just 
people who would do their job and were pleasant enough, but I had some who really projected to me whether it was truly happening or whether it was the way in which their manner was reassuring and full of um, attention or investment. Mm -hmm. I felt like when they were with me, I was the most important thing at that moment going on. That they weren't somewhere else. They were actually right there trying to do the best possible thing they could for me. And that had I been their mm -hmm. child or their cousin or their neighbor, they would be doing the same thing. That was the feeling that... Mm -hmm. I think that's the feeling you get when you're with a really, really good healthcare provider. Is that mm -hmm. nurse, doctor, whatever. That when you're there, in their, when you're entrusted into their care, they are taking care of you the, to the best of their ability, mm -hmm. regardless of who you are. It's so interesting that you brought that up. I feel like it's a... It's how I feel as most important in every situation, whether it be at a restaurant, a coffee mm -hmm. shop, having a conversation with a coworker in a constant changing world where everybody's so distracted. You know, mm -hmm. how many, I can tell you how many times a day I'll be at work running a meeting and how many people are on their phones. Um, yeah. You know, and then the meeting, we finally waited until everybody's available. So it's, it's just really interesting at a kind of a visceral well, level. I mean, I think it, it, it also it sometimes I think generates unrealistic expectations mm -hmm. in me because I'm held to that standard or I hold myself to that standard. Mm -hmm. When I'm with you, if you're a patient, you get my undivided attention mm -hmm. and compassion. And you don't get that in many other places. You don't get that at the auto mechanic shop. Mm -hmm. You don't get that in the supermarket. You know, rarely you get it though. And when you get it, it's remarkable, right? Yeah, when you're so in a store and someone is really not trying to just sell you something, but genuinely trying to help you. Mm. You just feel like, wow. Or you call up some, you know, customer service center for your iPhone or your whatever. You know, something's not working and you call mm -hmm. them for help. We're so accustomed to not being treated well. Mm -hmm. When you get somebody who really seems to care and just wants to make it right for you, mm. you know, it's, it's, it feels miraculous. It, and it's so interesting. I think that what makes a hospital or made a, uh, make a doctor good or great is kind of similar to how some of the other successful business run in the states and other countries mm -hmm. these days uh examples like starbucks and mm -hmm. people like to work there and trader joe's oh my yeah. god trader joe's and uh you know i my mom bought a, a pack of crackers it was really salty for her mm -hmm. and i had never returned anything back there i didn't know i could mm -hmm. um and then i took her there the whole time i was driving there's like oh it's embarrassing it's three dollars happened yeah. to be in the neighborhood and I had to brainstorm the entire story of apologizing first and then the moment I started apologizing the manager's like no problem here's a three dollar coupon get anything you want in the store and it, even like yesterday a gentleman was uh, yeah. stacking a shelf like in this really awkward position I said I'm really sorry I'm looking for he's like don't apologize he stopped everything he was doing at the yep. moment and walked me to, to find the, what to I the was. thing yeah and, and it blew my mind right and it makes you that's what makes you trust an organization like that and want to spend your money there even if it's more expensive mm -hmm. you'd rather spend a dollar there knowing that either if there's a problem there's no discussion mm -hmm. you'll just get your, your your needs addressed or number two you'd rather spend the dollar there yeah. even if it's an extra dollar you'd rather spend it to ensure that kind of service can be sustained mm -hmm. and i think it, i much rather spend that dollar because that is a a fee and premium I'm paying for the level the a level premium of service. service. Yeah, yeah, exactly. On the other hand, you're willing to buy books on Amazon at much lower prices mm -hmm. rather than support a local bookstore, right? So there is a, we do have this mm. um, love affair with also getting a very good price on 
consumables. Mm-hmm. So I think that the challenge there is where, where do you draw that line in your life? Where do you seek this much higher level of trust and intimacy and support mm-hmm. versus where do you just purchase disposable commodities? Mm-hmm. And I think a lot more of our culture has moved from that first category to that second category. Mm-hmm. And so we're, we, we've become accustomed to just what you said, distracted, mm-hmm. inefficient, depersonalized service because we're paying such low prices mm-hmm. for things that we don't actually expect them to work. Mm-hmm. Eli will buy things, my son will buy things online at a very low price and say, I'm not even sure it will arrive, <laughs> right? So I don't want to really put my credit card on this because, you know, one out of 10, it won't even, it's so inexpensive, one out of 10, they may just be taking my money. Mm, I may have contributed to that purchase. It's like <laughs> <laughs> AliExpress. Yeah. It's like, hey, I'm looking for a watch. I'm going to get this fancy watch for $3. Yeah. Right. Yeah, this is... Um, we don't expect service in those circumstances, right? We're, 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 we're making a trade-off there. Yeah, exactly. But also what's important to you, I think, when it comes to uh, medical services, it's, uh, you, it's very unlike buying a watch or even a cell phone. Uh, right. You want almost, you want a level of guarantee. You want the, the best in class. Um, uh, I would say that I agree with you up to a certain point, but mm-hmm. if you look at how many people are using minute clinics and health stops and sort of dock in a box mm. places. They want that for complex medical care and for longitudinal medical care. But if they have a sore throat and they just want antibiotics, or they just want someone to look in the back of their throat and tell them it's fine. Mm. And they can wait, they can call their doctor and be seen in two days and wait like four hours, or they could go literally into the CVS or the Walmart or whatever mm-hmm. and be seen in five minutes. Mm-hmm. They're starting to be willing to make some of those trade-offs. Yeah, exactly. So I, th- I think that um, and that's disruptive technology, right? That's, that's a disruptive approach to the traditional, complex, inefficient, expensive medical culture. Mm-hmm. And I think telemedicine is another disruption, right? Mm-hmm. You don't have to be physically in the building, sitting you know, with your car in the parking lot, mm-hmm. having waited three hours mm-hmm. and lost your way three times and mm-hmm. finally sitting in a waiting room or mm-hmm. sitting with your, you know, in your Johnny in the room, mm-hmm. waiting another 20 minutes for the mm-hmm. doctor to come in, mm-hmm. as opposed to sitting in your house, mm-hmm. just relaxing and working or watching TV until the doctor's ready to see you. I mean, so I think we're going to see more and more of that kind of disruption where people are figuring out ways to reduce the inefficiencies, just like Uber mm-hmm. is to transportation. So we have all this unused, inefficient transportation, mm-hmm. and we have inefficient ways of pairing up taxis, dispatching taxis to where people are. Mm-hmm. And Uber's a perfect disruptive technology for mm-hmm. that. Mm-hmm. It, it relies on an extension of trust that's fairly substantial and, and that may be its most vulnerable point. Mm-hmm. If you don't trust the Uber drivers, there's no Uber. Mm-hmm. And if you don't trust the random person who happens to be commuting in mm-hmm. the day you want to go in, you know, how can you trust Lyft or one of those other services? Mm-hmm. So a lot of services like that are built on a, on a pyramid of trust. And if that's shaky, that foundation is shaky, mm-hmm. they're, they're unlikely to be successful, except for moving packages, you know, or something like that that are, that are not people. Mm-hmm. Um, but bringing efficiencies to those markets where they are layered with inefficiencies, or there may not be layered with inefficiency for the providers. Mm-hmm. It's very efficient for a provider to sit in an office and have people wait forever and they just go from one to the next whenever they're done they take the next person that's very efficient for the provider there's no downtime you're batching people in the waiting room mm-hmm. but it's not very accommodating to patients mm-hmm. 
So funny that we, we've just done a slow walk, slow dance right into uh, kind of my uh, next question as well, mm-hmm. related to technology. Um, the question really is, how has medicine changed over time that, you know, in your experience, 20, 25 years, and in particular, in particular, how has technology served at times an asset, mm-hmm. at times as a liability mm-hmm. to the solution of a medical treatment or even approaching a particular problem? Well, there's no question that technology has revolutionized medical care and has taken it from what was largely considered almost like quackery. Uh, I mean, physicians for generations were not, it was not considered a revered profession. There was very little that they could do. The, the most important thing they did was bring pain relief. So they went home to home with morphine and gave morphine injections to people who were sick and dying. Mm-hmm. Um, and so really it wasn't until the invention of anesthesia that going to the hospital was associated with actually surviving as opposed to dying. And most of the time people went to hospitals, they died. Mm-hmm. Or they were chronically institutionalized in, in mental hospitals. Mm-hmm. So it's really been an area where the introduction of technology has dramatically improved the quality of people's lives and the likelihood of recovery. The challenge is that it's expensive and sometimes um, too eagerly applied and in part because of a fascination in our society with technology and I think in part because of the economics of investing in developing the new technologies, that's where all the money goes. So an hour spent with a doctor talking to a doctor figuring out what the problem might be is valued less than the cost of an x-ray. So an x-ray is paid more than an hour of a doctor's time. So there's something wrong with that formula. Um, And we've become very reliant on technology, oftentimes inappropriately, because the barriers Mm -hmm. to accessing technology in this country in particular are very low. In some countries, you can't get an MRI scan unless someone approves it. Mm -hmm. And there are very few MRI scanners, and so the number of people who can be scanned any given day is limited, and so there's a real filter there. In other places like the United States, there are MRI scanners everywhere. So you can get an MRI tomorrow mm-hmm. in Boston if you need one or you want one. You, if someone orders it, you can get an MRI tomorrow. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's definitely contributed to a rise in the cost of care. And in many circumstances, it's replaced the physical exam. Now, part of this, I think, gets to a, a distinction about how certain do you need to be and what price are we willing to pay for the um, ever-diminishing marginal benefit of certainty. So you can be very inexpensive if you're willing to tolerate a level of certainty of 80%, right? Uh, Your headaches, I'm 80% sure that they're benign, and let's just wait and see. And if you develop weakness on one side of your body, then we'll do a scan because then it's much more likely you have a brain tumor. Mm -hmm. But that's just a physical exam. That's an hour of a doctor's time. That's really cheap. Um, but it's not very certain. Well, the more you add on an hour of that plus an hour with a specialist, well, then the level of certainty rises, but it doesn't go to 100%. And I think part of, the, part of what drives the adoption of this technology is just trying to get to 100% certainty. Be certain. How can you be certain I don't have a brain tumor, doctor? Mm-hmm. Well, the only way I can be certain is if I do a scan. Yeah. Right? If I do a scan and it's negative, I can be certain. The likelihood of it being a brain tumor is incredibly low, but it's not zero. Mm-hmm. 1%? Yeah. 2%? Um, so there's a real price to certainty. 
And that goes for ordering lab tests or blood tests, imaging tests, even sometimes invasive procedures. So I would say it's a two-edged sword, or it's sort of two sides of the same coin. It's brought with it tremendous value. Mm -hmm. But like many things in life, the population of people in whom it was originally found to add value is a very small fraction of the people who are actually getting exposed to it now. So we find something very specific in which something is useful and then we generalize it broadly. Mm -hmm. So one strategy works well for this group of patients. Without really studying it or testing it carefully, we then apply it to everything. Mm -hmm. And so it spreads rapidly. A lot of the surgical procedures that we have that are designed to prevent future injury, for example, doing surgery on the carotid artery if it's narrowed, mm -hmm. those studies were first shown and proven to be effective in patients who had already had a stroke from a narrowed artery, and now you were preventing another stroke. They make up 20% of the patients who get those procedures now. 80% get them with narrowing who've never had a stroke. And there have been some studies to suggest that that might be effective, but those studies were done decades ago. And in the modern era with modern medications, those may not even be beneficial procedures anymore. Mm. So we have this problem where we generalize diagnostic and therapeutic procedures mm -hmm. to a broad range of patients, yeah. way beyond those in whom they were originally studied. Right. Wow. This but is, technology's yeah. done mm -hmm. wonderful things. Mm -hmm. Right. It's it's uh, the the problem is not with the technology. The problem is how we apply it and how we pay for it. Mm -hmm. So we we pay for lots of things that don't add marginal value. Mm -hmm. We, we mm -hmm. allow for multiple devices to be approved and sold that do the same thing, mm -hmm. when it would be much more cost-effective if we had one device mm -hmm. that did it. We compete with one another to have the sexiest, most expensive, most obscure technology as a marker that we're a, a better hospital. Mm -hmm. So everyone has to then go buy it. This is and so the people who sell the technology mm -hmm encourage that because they want you they want to sell five of those things not just one mm-hmm mm -hmm. and those are expensive things in millions and millions of dollars they're in the news they're on in scientific yeah. America and right. like robot surgery yeah. robotic surgery where the doctor doesn't hold the scalpel a machine holds the scalpel and the doctor manipulates controls well, what do you think about that that scares me to a certain degree I think there are one or two instances in which it was shown to be uh, beneficial in, in you know, sparing injury to nerves or improving the outcome of patients, mm -hmm. but that doesn't mean that it's cost-effective. Mm -hmm. I mean, you could have your tooth worked on by you know, the dentist in, in, the, in your neighborhood or by the dentist to the, you know, the prince of Saudi Arabia. Mm -hmm. it, it might be slightly better in Saudi Arabia, but is it worth the extra million dollars? Probably not. So that idea of cost effectiveness or incremental utility, um, mm -hmm. you can drive to work just fine in a Volkswagen. Mm -hmm. You can also drive there in a Bentley or a Ferrari or a Lamborghini, mm -hmm. but it's not about the cost effectiveness. Mm -hmm. There it's very clear that the, that the Volkswagen is the cost effective way to get to and from you know, your, your workplace. Mm -hmm. And I would like to use a personal example. Um, it's really interesting that um, one of the one of the doctors I was working with, I have this like, how to describe it, like during the, the summertime, every mm -hmm. time I get a mosquito bite, mm -hmm. I develop a like from a mild to a pretty severe or a response to mm -hmm. that. 
And it used to freak me out because mm-hmm. I would be at work, I'd be very uncomfortable. And uh, what I did was to go see a doctor, mm-hmm. many cases, a very young doctor, I look at her, I was like, oh, we're pretty similar in age. And mm-hmm. um, a couple of procedures or recommendations would be, I feel like I've taken in so many different kinds of antibiotics mm-hmm. for this uh, particular scenario mm-hmm. multiple times. And to some point I run out of different antibiotics for me to take. Yeah. And then one day I decided, uh, to for whatever reason everybody else was unavailable I saw this doctor he probably would be in his 50s possibly mm-hmm. 60 he looked at me he's like what are you taking antibiotics for I mean mm-hmm. all these fancy medicine on your record yeah. you just um, uh, he said just take antihistamine uh, mm-hmm. what you need is not the regular one milligram it's 2.5 just need to be a little bit stronger mm-hmm. than over-the-counter stuff uh, and you just Benadryl and yeah. I took one Benadryl, I was, I was, I was cured, I was gone. Yeah. So uh, it was so interesting to me that somebody was able to kind of reduce the level of complexity in the procedure. Well, it also, it also shows you that you have no way as a consumer to know when you're getting good advice. Right. Right. I mean, you have a lot of empiric observations that you tried something, it didn't work. You tried something else, it didn't work. You saw another doctor, it didn't work. Right. You, mm-hmm. You only had empirical observation to rely on. Mm-hmm. You, it wasn't a mechanism for you to look at a source of information and see that Dr. Jones sees 45 cases just like yours a year mm-hmm. and that the cure rate is 85%, whereas Dr. Smith has only seen one case mm-hmm. and the cure rate was 0%. Right? You don't have any source of information. So <clears throat> it's very hard to evaluate the quality of the advice and you might have gotten the perfectly good advice and it didn't work. Right, exactly. So it's, I think there's a tremendous amount of um, sort of trust and intuition that goes into mm-hmm. trying to find the right doctor and part of that has to be the doctor's willingness to say, I haven't seen this before, I'd like mm-hmm. to send you to someone else who has. Mm-hmm. Right. If they always have the answer, odds are they don't have the answer. Right. Right. Because nobody has seen everything, mm-hmm. and nobody knows. So the best doctor is somebody who is networked, mm-hmm. and who is comfortable asking their peers for advice, mm-hmm. and frequently shares information. So if you were to, do you know about social network analysis? No, I love so, to learn. So forget about Facebook, mm-hmm. which which is an example of an online social network, mm-hmm. but it's a nice example of a way that it's easy to look at and calculate someone's social relationships. Now, whether it's accurate or not, it's hard to know. If you have a thousand friends on Facebook and I have 20, (laughs) does it mean that you really have more friends? Or is it just that you have a different approach to seeking out and constructing a social network? Mm -hmm. But you can look at people's social networks and analyze the structure of that set of relationships Mm -hmm. a little bit like a three-dimensional version of mind model. You know, so you sort of look at it's, it's basically a diagram with nodes and spokes. And yeah. so if you're here, you know, how many people are your friends and mm-hmm. how many friends do they have and how many friends do you all share in common? So there are aspects of a social network, density of the network, and the, um, there are statistical methods to compare different features or aspects of social networks. Mm-hmm. There's a scientist named Nicholas Christakis who used to be at the School of Public Health at Harvard and now is at Yale who published some very influential papers in the last decade, two of which made the popular press, and you may have heard about. In one of them, he showed that if your friends are obese, you're more likely to be obese than the rest of the population. Mm -hmm. And that 
you have to get to six degrees of separation from that obesity circle before your weight goes back to normal. So this non-communicable disease is not an infectious, obesity is not an infectious disease, infects communities mm -hmm. through just norms of social behavior. Mm -hmm. If you are friends of smokers, you're more likely to be a smoker. Mm -hmm. If you're friends of friends of smokers, you're more likely to be a smoker. You have to get several nodes away mm -hmm. before you're less likely to be a smoker compared to the rest of the population. Mm -hmm. I would argue that doctors who have very small and isolated social networks from their professional lives mm -hmm. probably are not as good as doctors with broad networks who frequently exchange information with their peers about medical care. Mm -hmm. It's part of why doctors at teaching hospitals are more up to date and probably better doctors than doctors who practice only in the community. Mm -hmm. Because in a teaching hospital environment, your social network is large mm -hmm. and the constant conversation about interesting and challenging medical cases means that you're constantly receiving education and updates mm -hmm. about a wide variety of diseases mm -hmm. that you otherwise wouldn't be exposed to. It's like if you work it from home, mm -hmm. your, your social sphere is small and you're not going to be as quick to mm -hmm. be uh, up to date on certain kinds of social themes and interactions. If you spend a lot of time online, you're going to be plugged into something different, mm -hmm. but it's, a, it's not the same, same social environment. It's a different social environment. I think your point of view not only applies to doctor and doctors in medicine, really kind of if for every single field, including uh, mine, for instance, like I've, you know, as a project manager, I remember I was once criticized as a 22 year old for liking, enjoying working with, with designers, with user experience people, with mm -hmm. technologists. And the criticism was like, you clear don't know what you want, mm -hmm. right? Because I was experimenting. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, all of what I did kind of served the purpose of what I do now as mm -hmm. a project manager to understand how to talk to these people, mm -hmm. how what they're interested in learning and doing, how they're connected to one another, mm -hmm. kind of how the nodes are all connected. Mm -hmm. And people are saying, who are you interviewing for the Face World podcast? That's what I'm interviewing. Doctors, mm -hmm. entrepreneurs, and you know, artists. And I was like, so what's the theme there, right? Mm -hmm. And the people ask us like, why are you talking to different people? Mm -hmm. Is surprisingly, if you happen to listen to other episodes, there is there is that that sort of um, point of view that mm -hmm. are very similar. In this case, I think for people to have a very well um, a welcoming nature, mm -hmm. uh, almost have a uh, sort of a um, a child's mind to mm -hmm. be open minded mm -hmm. is very early on in our conversation. If I go back a little bit. You had mentioned that we have we have the tendency of proving what we know is right and mm -hmm. dis disproving things we don't know, mm -hmm. which is uh, an area of study called confirmation bias mm -hmm. that I loved reading about. And it's so true, uh, even in what I do, to mm -hmm. tell the client this is the right solution because it's sort of you know what I've comfort. been doing, comfort level, right? I don't know how the other things are going to work out. And right now, two major projects I'm running on are things, honestly, I've never done before. One is 3D, really, 3D rendering. Mm -hmm. The client doesn't listen to this. Or the other one is, you know, Google Cardboard and this whole panoramic view. And there's some elements I'm familiar with, but there are a lot of, a lot of that I find very intriguing and interesting. And people talk to me about, how could you run, how could you want to run those projects? I'm so glad I'm not on those projects, you know? Mm -hmm. But it's, it's really interesting, too, what you just talked about. Well, I mean, part of what that gets to also is the idea of, you know, what 
what is the right skill set for someone to manage other people? Mm-hmm. Is it content specific knowledge mm-hmm. or is it sort of people knowledge, right? Is it about getting the most that you can from the people who you're supporting mm-hmm. or is it that you're actually expected to make the technical decisions about what how to code this or how to draw this or how to put this model together or you know how to um, how to make uh, you know technical expertise domain specific decisions which presumably are why you have a creative department and a draftsman and a whatever is actually for those technical skills where I see where I see it in in my work is who's the right person to manage a health IT project is it an engineer who has content expertise and wanted to rise up from the ranks of a programmer and become a manager or is it a manager Mm-hmm. who has really excellent management skills and doesn't know that much about IT. Mm-hmm. Who makes the better manager? And I would say, in my experience, it all depends on what the product is. Mm-hmm. If the product is a highly technical product that will be used only by highly technical users, I find that IT-based managers do a better job because they really understand the user mm-hmm. and they, the user's experience is very similar to their experience. Mm-hmm. When the product is something that's used by non-experts, that's where I feel like a lot of times having a, a non-IT manager turns out a better solution because the manager sits closer to the end user mm-hmm. in the sense that they don't, they're not natively, intuitively bonded to the technology. Mm-hmm. They see it from the perspective of someone who doesn't fully understand it, which means they're more likely to ask the right kinds of questions, mm-hmm. the kinds of questions their users are going to ask mm-hmm. or have the kinds of experience their user might have of, this isn't intuitive. Like, what do you mean you just click the space bar and, and mm-hmm. you know, and put the mouse in the upper left and like, who would know that? Mm-hmm. You know, that needs to be explicit. That can't, you can't just assume that it makes sense mm-hmm. just because it makes sense to you. It doesn't mean it's going to make sense to someone else. Mm-hmm. So putting your, I think, you know, the sort of, uh, you know, you got to be organized. You've got to meet deadlines, right? Those are some, those are obvious traits that are, that are common to anybody managing a project. Mm-hmm. But I think the ability to walk in the shoes of the people who are, for whom you're building this mm-hmm. is the most important skill. And so pick the manager based on the client, not mm-hmm. based on the technology. Mm-hmm. That, that's been my experience and that's why for me, as someone who hasn't really been a project manager but really more of a project leader, bringing technology into healthcare, my skill, my sort of special skill has been to be able to think like a user so that I'm creating high reliability systems and redundancies and you know thinking okay when the user sits down to do this what are they thinking about they're not thinking about the technology they're thinking about the problem they're supposed to solve like Mm -hmm. the patient in front of them Mm -hmm. they're not thinking oh goody now let me play with an operating system right Mm -hmm. they're thinking how do I possibly you know figure out what's wrong with this woman's arm Mm -hmm. and write the right prescription Mm -hmm. so I, I think that um too often we try to introduce technology into healthcare through technology mm-hmm. as opposed to saying here's a clinical problem mm-hmm. what's the best tool for this job mm-hmm. and then we go out and we find the technology that meets that need rather than saying oh wow here's a really cool device mm-hmm. let's stick it in here and see if it works right exactly it's from a user user first i think almost a user experience approach yeah um, one of my previous guests used to say that instead of 
thinking outside of the box you might find a better box mm-hmm. you know a lot mm-hmm. of the questions that we deal with even in my industry is partially defined problems or completely undefined problems i find the undefined ones more interesting mm-hmm. because partially defined sometimes isn't very well defined or right. even you know so um so this is fascinating i and there's anything else that i haven't talked about asked um, that you'd like to share with my audience? We can cover that in part seven and eight of the series. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds great. Awesome. To listen to more episodes of the Face World podcast, please subscribe on iTunes or visit faceworld.com. That is F E I S W O R L D, where you can find show notes, links, other tools, and resources. You can also follow me on Twitter at FaceWorld. Until next time, thanks for listening.